From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for carving a little time out of your Thursday afternoon to join us here on EWTN's Open Line. Dominican Father Brian Milady is in the house, ready to take your questions. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one. 1- Two zero five two seven one two nine eight five, and if you are outside of the United States and Canada, we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. You can always send us an email open line at ewtn.com, or you can text your question. Text the letters ewtn to five five zero zero zero. Wait for a response, text your first name and your question, message, and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may get to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every Thursday stranded in Los Angeles, Father Brian Mullady. Beautiful Sacred Heart Retreat House with the Carmelite Sisters. Well, there's worse uh, places to be stranded. Well, that's true. Uh, anyway, my flight was canceled yesterday. I hope hopefully get out tomorrow. Anyway, I'm happy to be here with you. <laughs> you know, Father, one of the beauties of our Catholic faith is is the way that the Magisterium of the Church and our Holy Tradition has opened the Scriptures to us. And uh, we had a pastor here in, in Alabama that used to talk about the uh, sacred scripture being our our family album uh, as Christians, and there are so many instances that have so many layers of meaning to them, and you want to kind of help unpack one of those instances today. Yes, well, in the octave of Christmas, uh, when we are prolonging our Christmas celebration for eight days, because it's one of the principal feasts of the church year where we celebrate our Lord actually coming out of the womb. You know, the incarnation was celebrated on the Annunciation when Christ was conceived. But nine months later, after March 25th, we celebrate Christ coming out of the womb. A very important part of his revelation as a baby is the presentation in the temple. Uh, We celebrate a feast for the presentation, which actually ends the Christmas season officially, fully, finally, and completely, Uh, Candlemas Day on February 2nd. But we read the reading this week also during the octave because it's such an important episode in our Lord's life. The Eastern Church celebrates the Feast of the Presentation as the Feast of Meeting because their idea is that the Lord of the Temple, the little baby, comes to meet the Temple for the first time 
when the sacrifice is offered for him as a member of Israel. But in doing this, he begins the process of putting an end to the old law. And that process will be complete when the curtain of the temple is torn and the Holy of Holies is exposed when he dies on the cross. So you have Mary and Joseph bringing him to the temple and you have these two figures, Simeon and Anna. Simeon, both of them represent the longing of the people to receive redemption for centuries and centuries. And Simeon has had this revelation given to him that he will not see death until he has seen the Messiah. And immediately, you wouldn't think that this little baby of this poor household would be the Messiah, but he recognizes the Messiah. And then he speaks this absolutely beautiful canticle. And we use this canticle in our liturgy today. We usually celebrate it at Compline or night prayer because it's actually a prayer for death. I've always been amused in some ways and uh, intrigued by the fact that all the octave of Christmas, which we begin with this celebration of the little baby, is all but most of it's about blood, martyrdom, holy innocence, Saint Stephen. And uh, this is no exception because remember, Anna talks about the sword that will pierce Mary's heart. But anyway, Simeon takes the child in his arms and he says, now you can dismiss your servant in peace because your word has been fulfilled, my own eyes. And in this, he speaks in our name too, in the name of the whole human race, longing for redemption, have seen your salvation. And then there's this very peculiar phrase, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The term light in that canticle refers to what the pagan philosophers like Aristotle called the medium by which we know in reason. So in other words, what reason sought in science and philosophy is in the Gentiles fulfilled in the little baby. And in the same way, the glory, that's the Holy Shekinah, that covered the mountain when the law was given and filled the temple when the sacrifices were performed, and actually the glory of the Lord that shone around the angels in Bethlehem, and the glory of your people Israel, which to the Jews, even to this day, the Holy Shekinah is a sign of the presence of God. So in other words, echoing St. Paul's ideas, both the Jews and the Gentiles find what they've longed for for so many centuries. And of course, with the Jews, it's with fuller knowledge because salvation comes from the Jews. But they find what they've been longing for for so many centuries in this little baby. And because it's the completion of the revelation of the coming of the Messiah, now then their life is fulfilled. And so Simeon, who especially is rather old, can actually pray now for death. We had a priest who was dying and he was about 85. And because of various surgeries it had and things, his organs were shutting down. And the doctor who was caring for him, who was a parishioner of ours said, you know, I don't think there's anything we can do. Uh, we can do a surgery, but it might save your life for a couple of months. But 
I'm not sure you would survive it. So father said, well, I've been preparing for this moment my whole life. So just bring death on. And he died within a day. Well, in a similar way, Simeon sees what he's been longing for for all these centuries and Anna praying for in the temple. And us, we, even in our post-Christian era, should see in this little baby the Lord of the temple who comes to meet the temple, who now is the means by which we enter into communion and full knowledge of God to prepare ourselves for heaven. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, your number is 1-205-271-2985. All right, Father, let's get down to where the rubber meets the road. Uh, my late wife Susie and I had a practice, as you mentioned, the absolute total finality of the Christmas season comes at the Feast of the Presentation on February 2nd, and we used to leave all of our decorations up until that day, and you know, we had neighbors that were racing Christmas trees out to the curb on Christmas Day afternoon, and, right. uh, and, and you know, I know some people wait till Epiphany, some people wait till the Baptism of the Lord. Do you have any wise guidance in how to handle our Christmas decorations? Well, I think it depends on uh, what your customs are, but certainly Epiphany would be the first moment you could get rid of them. It doesn't make much sense to throw the Christmas tree out on the day of Christmas because that's actually the beginning of the Christmas season, not Advent. So liturgically, it would make great sense to begin then. By the outset, the absolute outset should be, as you said, the Candlemas Day, the February 2nd. And they have that beautiful procession, luminous light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory of your people Israel, where all the candles are blessed and everyone goes in procession with candles and, and sings that particular antiphon. But uh, I don't think that the uh, decoration should totally be taken down until February the 2nd, unless that's not your custom. But, you know, not not before January 6th, for sure. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, this whole endeavor, radio, television, uh, the internet, uh, newspapers, was all started by uh, the obedience of one little poor Claire nun, Mother Angelica, uh, who really left quite a legacy for all of us to live up to. And if you'd like to look into that legacy of Mother Angelica, a very good friend of Father Brian Malady's, by the way, um, you can check it out uh, on our website at EWTN.com 
slash Mother Angelica, all kinds of tributes and uh, the story of her life and all kinds of interesting reading. So if you'd like to learn a little bit more about our fam- our foundress, once again, it's EWTN.com slash Mother Angelica. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines, plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. First up today is Gabrielle in the great state of Ohio, listening on Annunciation Radio. Gabrielle, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. First of all, I want to wish you a happy uh, Christmas, belated and not ever forget that Christ came to give us the good news that we are all children of God and we must all love each other, whether we are black, white, uh, Baptist, atheist, or, or Islamic. It doesn't matter. We are all his children, and we must love each other and respect each other. Amen. What can we do for you today? Well, uh, have you seen the news lately, how we have so many droughts and so many floods and so many hurricanes and so many fires and People are having to escape their homelands in Europe and Asia and Africa everywhere because there's not enough food to go around. Uh, yes, I've seen that, but I wasn't aware the cause was no food. Uh, well, people I was... don't lose the comfort of their home unless they have no jobs. There's not enough to go around, so people who have lived for millennia in different countries they are leaving because they're desperate. They're starving. They're having no place to go. What's your and question? They, they, What's your question? Okay, so, so this is a, a reflection of the planet. The planet has only so much. It's a finite uh, planet that can only produce so much food and so much shelter and so much natural resources. And so unless we have a sustainable population, we're never going to make it. So, is this uh, a question so, or a, a comment? No, I'm just trying to make you, if you're a patient, go through the thought process. So, when Christ was born, he was Jewish, yes? Yes. But he was and, also Christian. Uh, he was also well, Christian. He, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. He became the father of Christianity, but he was born under Jewish religion. And in the he Jewish was. religion... Yes, of course, of course. So, you're agreeing with me. So, in the Jewish religion... Uh, do you know when uh, the Jewish religion says that you are a soul, that now you have a life and a soul? you know when in the conception of a person when you have a life and a soul, according to the Jewish, which is, of course, from Christ's origin? Do you know when? I wasn't aware they had a settled doctrine on yes, this. Yes, they, they say I know that I don't think soul? they do. I'm sorry, I don't think they do. What well, source do. are you referring to, the Talmud or the Old Testament, no, or what no, no, source no, are you referring to? Okay, the New Testament is not the Jewish uh, Bible. The Jewish Bible the is Talmud the Talmud is not the New Testament. It's the, the Torah. It's the interpretation of the law. Yeah, the interpretation no, no, no. of the law. Okay, I'm not here to By argue. I'm just, I'm just here to, to have a, a polite and respectful conversation. So when Jesus, uh, uh, he was born under the Jewish religion, uh, in those times they didn't have good doctors, they didn't have running water, they didn't have antibiotics, so a very high amount of children would die within the first eight days. And therefore, they did not want to call them souls. They waited for eight days, and only after the eighth day, they would say that they have a soul, and therefore they are alive. They were not According to whom? No, I don't don't, dispute your authority. According to whom? The Jewish Bible. No, no, there was no settled. No, I'm sorry. What book did you read that told you this? 
This is true. Please look it up in any source of information. The Jewish religion. Yes, I the- have. I have studied it quite a lot, actually, the Jewish religion. And I'm not aware they had a settled doctrine. They didn't even have a settled doctrine on the immortality of the soul exactly until rather late because they hadn't think about it that much. They certainly, however, did not practice abortion. Wait. They, they, they did not have any children. They did not give a soul to this newborn child who's breathing and no, living no. until God eight gives days. it a soul. God gives the but, soul. Exactly, uh, yeah. exactly. And according to the Jewish religion, you become a soul by the eighth day. And it is then when the little boys get circumcised, not before, because of the mortality. The girls? Of the they don't get when circumcised. Do they get the soul? Eight days. It's, it's, it's universal they, for they, anybody. They can't be. They can't be circumcised. So, Father, what about this whole notion of the planet not being able to sustain more than a certain number of folks? 200 years ago, an Anglican clergyman Malthus thought that. And yet we have developed so many. No, we can feed our planet. And we have plenty of sources of food. The population of the world many times over. That's right. And so could places like the Ukraine and all other kinds of places, too. In Africa. They had to develop the ability to cultivate again in a way that they kind of have given up from all the civil wars and the dictatorships. That's the source of their difficulties. So really, Uh, the largest largest cause of hunger in the world by far is politics, huh? I would say so, yes. And as far as the Jewish doctrine of the immortality of the soul— I have never seen any particular source that says it was at eight days at circumcision. That was when a person became a member of Israel formally, like baptism. But there was no uh, no judgment made on the entrance of the soul or the spirit. And as far as I'm aware from the Jewish scriptures, including the wisdom literature, we have a spirit always. So... The immortality of the soul is something that uh, I'm not sure they put a particular limitation on. In fact, I'm sure they didn't. So I think I don't know what the source is. I'd like to know the source. And these same things all would apply just as they do to you and I to the human nature of the God-man, huh? Uh, Yes, that's true. He had a human soul. We believe Jesus had a human soul from the moment of his conception in Mary. And uh, there was some some discussion in the ancient world about when the soul entered the body, but even uh, it was because of primitive biology, they weren't clear about this. Even the Greeks had great difficulty with this. And Aristotle maintained, I think it was 40 days after conception that the soul entered the body, or 40 months or something. I can't remember, frankly. Uh, when the body became um, uh, organized enough to hold the soul would be the idea. But that was because of ancient biology. They couldn't examine fetuses and wombs and things like that biologically. And we know today because of DNA that your DNA is what it is for the moment you're conceived by your mother. So even if we were to hold, as some do, that there was a kind of progressive animation, maybe a few hours or a few days, this would not in any sense allow a person to approve abortion again because you'd be killing uh, a, someone 
who may not be a person at that moment, but certainly by nature is becoming a person and you by subjective will are interrupting that artificially. So in other words, if you weren't committing murder objectively, you'd be committing murder subjectively. So this, this whole argument is something that is somebody who's trying to force certain categories and to justify modern problems, which the ancient world had no um, truck with. Um, 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Next up is Tom in New Orleans, Louisiana, listening to us on Catholic Community Radio. Tom, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Hello, Tom. Uh, you're saying Tom. I think we're talking to Bob. Bob. Okay, Bob. My apologies. Our call screener needs to clean his ears out. Welcome to the program. Well, Bob. <laughs> I've I've been called a lot worse. Okay, so let's go from there. Um, All right. Uh, a very simple question: um, Can a Jew? do the Old Testament reading inside of my funeral mass? Well, you know, this used to be a lot more open-ended, but people have become more strict about this. Remember, lector isn't just a person reading at mass. He's a part of the liturgy. And as a result, he should be a Catholic. If you your priest allows this, uh, well, it might be fitting to do the Old Testament, but uh, they're getting much more strict about this now as to uh, offices that are connected to the Mass itself. You know, if it would be different if it wasn't the Mass, if it was a, perhaps a eulogy or something like that. But if you're being a part of the liturgy, you really should be a Catholic. Well, I was elected for quite a long time and then moved on to two other things, and so I understand, went through the training and so forth. Um, and I, I agree with that. But uh, okay. you almost answered my question. Suppose this is a funeral service and not a mass. Oh, well, then I would say anybody could do it, yeah. You mean like a rosary or a wake or something like that? Yeah, if it's outside the context of the liturgy, anybody can do it. But if it's in the context of the liturgy, it's like the acolyte. It's an office in the liturgy. It should be done by a Very Catholic. Good. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right, awesome. Okay. Thank you, Bob. We appreciate the phone call. Uh, 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833 288 3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you today. That number is 1 205 271 2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line if you are outside of North America at 1 205 271 2985. You can always send us an email. It's openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. And in the subject line, you could put Thursday or Father Milady in the subject line, and we'll get it to the 
appropriate location. And if we don't get to it during one of the programs, it might be good fodder for one of our mailbag programs that we do occasionally as we empty out that mailbag. So feel free to send us those emails at openline at EWTN.com. And you can text your question to Father. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. And a message and data rates may apply. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Dominican Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. You know, we have a great lineup on EWTN Radio on the weekend. and one of our Sunday programs, you may have never uh, heard it or heard of it. I would highly recommend it to you. It's called Light of the East. And it airs on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And it's uh, hosted by Father Thomas Loya, who is a Byzantine Rite Catholic priest. And uh, this Sunday he's going to talk about our Lord's great act of love and humiliation, that it does not begin and end with just the fact that he was born as a babe in a cave in Bethlehem. Our Lord's divine condescension will continue to unfold in events such as circumcision on the eighth day. So continue our walk through the Christmas season with Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East Radio, Sunday morning, 1130 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. And... um. We have Mary in the great state of Connecticut, and she doesn't want to go on the air, Father, but her question is, is it true that demons cannot read your mind? Is it? Well, you have to make a distinction here. Uh, They can't read your actual thoughts, which are deeply held within your person and your intellect. But because your thoughts are often expressed in images, mental images, they, as angels, have a control even over images in your brain. That's why they often put strange images in your mind that lead you to think or do certain things um, that might even, well, they might even lead eventually to sin if you consented to them. But as to the actual thoughts themselves, they can't enter there unless you express these in image. And, you know, we do use a lot of images in our thinking because, for one thing, uh, our intellect receives things through the senses. But it would be the sensible part of that that they could know, but not the deeply held conviction in the person themselves. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Pick up a phone and grab one of these open phone lines for us at 833-288-3986. We've got an email from Clifford, and he says, I am freshly Catholic. I like that term. Oh, wow. (laughs) And my non-Catholic family is giving pushback regarding apostolic succession. How can I reply to their comments that the apostolic age is over? Oh, gee. Well, I mean, our Lord established those people so that the offices would continue. Now, not so much the offices of founders of churches, like the patriarchal sees and things like that, but the offices for governing the church. 
And when he says to Peter, for example, uh, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And when he says to the apostles in the upper room, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. He doesn't say, just until you die. <laughs> you know, I mean, he basically gives them the ability to hand on these offices. And the epistles are certainly quite clear about that in various places. That they're receiving, uh, even St. Paul says this, you know, I was born out of age because I, he didn't really experience Christ physically on earth as far as his public ministry was concerned. He did experience him on the road to Damascus, objectively speaking. But uh, there's no statement ever made that this isn't for the new, new Israel, uh, which is the church. And the 70 elders and all that business, that's all reflections on the Old Testament leadership. The kingdom of God will take a review and hand it over to others, he says, to the leadership of Israel, because in the church, we now have the new leaders. In fact, it's very interesting that when it comes to the charism of the infallibility of the Pope, um, the high priest is said to have exercised that charism also. So when Caiaphas said, remember he's in his states, John says very pointedly, he spoke as high priest that year. It's expedient for one man to die for the nation. Now, of course, he was wicked in saying that. But what he said was actually true, that when Christ died, he would die to save Israel and, of course, the whole human race. So there's never any suggestion given in the New Testament that this is limited only to them. Now, the Protestants have a tendency to do to think this way because they think the church was corrupted, but that wasn't until the church and state were united under Constantine. So even they hold for a certain post-apostolic age. But for them, that was corrupted when the church and the state became one, and then it wasn't reinstituted until the reformers. In the 16th century, I must admit, I find their logic impossible to understand how we were... Uh, fell away for a thousand years, and then these people sort of rediscovered the whole thing then. But anyway, that's what many of them think. So if that's what you're referring to, uh, it doesn't make any sense historically. And certainly the church and the early councils never thought that way. 833-288-EWTN. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Wide open phone lines for you right now on an open line Thursday. 833-288-3986. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Charles writes in, why does it say that Jesus descended into hell in the creed? Well, the term descent there is used analogically. It's not really a physical descent into the regions of the earth. But it's because hell is, of course, lower than human nature. And the hell there, as you remember, it's a, a difficulty in translation. It actually means the depths. And it refers to the place where many people believed, and we actually believe too, that not only the people who were damned went before Christ's death, but the um, uh, people who were waiting to go to heaven went to the limbo of the just because the gates of heaven were not yet opened. So it's called hell only in an analogical sense, also because it, it doesn't, they don't yet see God, number one. 
but they will as soon as Christ dies on the cross. And so various people had various names for it, and Sheol was one, and there, there are lots of different names for it. There's a, a wonderful painting of Christ in his harrowing of hell, actually, is what it's called, in more proper terminology, where he's knocking down the doors of this place with the resurrection banner. And all the people, the saints of the Old Testament, who were enumerated, by the way, in some of them in Hebrews chapter 11, are rushing over to him because they finally see whom, him whom they have longed for. But then Satan, way off in another chamber of this, is cowering because now he sees whom he's rejected personally. And that adds to his punishment. So the word hell there is a, a word that is difficult to translate in English. It basically refers to the lower places or to the depths or to the place of the dead, basically, before Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead and opened the gates of heaven. 833-288-EWTN. It's our toll-free number. We'd love to hear from you at 833-288-3986. You know, sometimes uh, in in, uh, our discussion of the Catholic faith, we speak of of ordinary means versus extraordinary means. And Tom would like to know, if people outside of the faith can enter heaven, how are we supposed to evangelize? Oh, well, that's very simple, really, in a way. Uh, the only way they can reason they can enter heaven is because of invincible ignorance. In other words, they have something true in their religion that they're living And because they don't know any better, they can't be held responsible for what they don't know. So there are basically two dogmatic statements. Uh, Actually, one is dogma, the other is morals, which both have to be affirmed. And that is that uh, there's no salvation outside the Catholic Church, but God never condemns those who do what they're able to do. So if you have a movement toward the truths of our religion that are in union with us, if you were presented with the fact of Christ, you should immediately believe. That's true of the centurion. Remember, he's a Roman. And in the New Testament in Acts, it's very clear regarding the court eunuch from the court of Ethiopian eunuch in the court of Candace. Remember, he meets Philip on the road and he's reading Isaiah. And so Philip explains to him, he wants to know what the text could mean. And he explains about Christ and baptism. Well, the Ethiopian eunuch's immediate response is, well, there's water here. Why, why can't I be baptized now? So whatever is true in a pagan religion that would lead a person to heaven or the Jewish faith is something that should lead them when they recognize Christ and are told about Christ, to immediately accept him. And that's our job. Our job, therefore, is to fill it out. In other words, to bring the evangelization, the direct evangelization, while people are on earth, to not keep them in invincible ignorance, but to say, this is the one that you're looking for. And then they should believe. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 
3986. Next up is Nancy in Houston, Texas. She's got a follow-up, Father, uh, to uh, a previous answer. Uh, she's listening on the EWTN app. Nancy, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Nancy. Hey, Father. Hey. Um, I have to, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. Thank you so much for everything you do. God bless you. Same and, here. My Merry Christmas to you. Yeah. Uh, Merry Christmas. So I'm a cradle Catholic, but I was not catechized. And now that's all. I, all I do is listen to you guys all day long when I'm not at work. So anyway, here's my question. Um, that and in the creed, um, not always, but sometimes it says um, Christ descended into hell and then he ascended into heaven. Number one, they don't always say the part about hell. And number two, I don't understand that. Well, because it depends on what errors. Well, it depends on what errors they're trying to answer, too, why they want to be very specific. Um, There are various creeds, you know. There's the Apostles' Creed, which is the most basic one we all know. And then, of course, there's the Nicene Creed, which which we say on Sunday at Mass. But there's also a creed called the Athanasian Creed, which is even deeper, but had a lot to do with clarifying our faith in the Trinity. And there are a number of creedal statements in the early church that were originally baptismal formulae. And so they were very uh, succinct to begin with, but then they eventually added on various parts of the mystery if these especially became questioned. So they won't talk about one particular part of it because it wasn't something people were having a difficulty with at that time. So you have to see all of them together to get the complete and total picture. All of the Apostles' Creed, you know, there's a tradition. This is a pious tradition. It isn't historically accurate. But uh, the pious tradition was that when the Holy Spirit came upon the 12 apostles, on Pentecost, each one stood up and uttered one of the 12 articles of faith in the Apostles' Creed. This was to show the connection between this creed and their understanding of Christ. Because all we're trying to do is plumb the understanding of the apostles of Christ in all the councils we've had and things like that. So uh, it's the shortest and most accessible. And that's the reason why we say it the most often. It's just using the rosary and and, and many other places. But uh, the Nicene Creed, of course, is something we do or should do on Sunday because it has a fuller expression of the faith. Does that help, Nancy? I mean, I still don't understand why it says he descended into hell. (laughs) Because when, look, get beyond the language. Because Christ went, after he died on the cross, for three days to evangelize the people who had lived before him but believed in him. And that's what the term hell means there. And the term descent is used because the way ancient people used to think about it was heaven was up and hell was down. But uh, it's a, um, basically a poetic way of saying that heaven fulfills the highest part of ourselves, whereas in hell we experience the lowest part of ourselves. But the word hell there is, again, a general word 
that people used in those times to talk about the place of the dead. Well, those people are in the place of the dead because the gates of heaven are not opened until Christ atones for the original sin, which occurs when he dies on the cross, but also rises from the dead. So in that three-day period, in three years he evangelized earth, three days he evangelizes Sheol or limbo. It's called the limbo of the just in many theological sources. Very good. Thanks so much, Nancy. We appreciate the phone call, and thanks so much for the kind words. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We can still take your phone call at 833-288-3986. got a question here, Father, that, that I've never really pondered before, but it's actually, I think, a pretty interesting question. Diana says, I have often heard the phrase, God's image and likeness. What is the difference between his image and his likeness? <laughs> well, the difference in his image and his likeness, according to some authors, is that the image of God is reflected in our nature of having an intellect and will. But the likeness to God is fulfilled in grace. So Adam and Eve were created in the image and likeness of God because they not only had a spirit that had an intellect and will, but they also had grace. So the image and likeness would refer to uh, the fulfillment of what the intellect and will are capable of by divine union. And speaking of grace, Reed is watching us on YouTube, and she says, is it okay to stay away from confession and have personal reflections with Christ as I try to discover how I can keep away from committing the same sin? Well, I mean, okay, we have to make distinctions. If you're talking about mortal sins, no, it's not okay. <laughs> you have to go and confess those. If you're talking about venial sins, yes, that would be true. But I don't quite understand the weight of the question about why you'd stay away from confession. Um, if you think Jesus is helping you in your prayer life to do that, that's fine. But, uh, again, you should mention weaknesses when you do go to confession because you need, A, to talk it over with Christ. Remember, the priest is just, we're, we're nothing, really. We're just the, the conduit. And uh, also, you need to ask his particular help, and that's the reason the grace of confession was given to us, to ask his particular help in dealing with these particular weaknesses that each of us have but a variation on the theme. So I don't quite understand why you put stay away from confession. If you mean not go to confession every time you want help, well, then, of course, you don't have to do that. The only It's recommended by the church to help you with the graces involved, but it's not required unless it's a mortal sin, and then you have to go and confess the times and numbers. You know, I think it may, it sounds a little to me, and this is me speaking from personal experience from my past, but it sounds like, um, you know, she may be looking for some sort of a justification for not having to repeat to Father the same sin over and over again. Yes, but again, that would only be the case in mortal sins. Uh, you're encouraged to confess venial sins, but you don't have to confess them all. Kind of number. Mortal sins, the requirement of the Council of Trent is still in effect, 
And I know that a lot of people don't even know this because I hear confessions in my mission preaching all over. And they, they just don't know how to go to confession today because they don't talk about kind and number. And you're supposed to talk about kind and number of all remembered mortal sins. Venial sins you may discuss because you need to receive help with some of them. And I've also had people that have, I don't know, they, some of the stuff they confess, I must admit, just I don't understand it. Uh, I wasn't nice to my cat. Um, I didn't walk my dog when I should have. Uh, you want to say, okay, well, that's nice, but that's not exactly what, does it rise to the level of even venial sin? So I, I, I don't know what to say about that. Uh, Mike is in Cleveland, Ohio. He's listening to us on The Rock today. Mike, you are on with Father Brian. Hello. So Hello. I've, I've, I've got a question about the catechism. So in the beginning, before you get to the prologue, there's a section that's titled Apostolic, Apostolic Constitution. Right. And, and towards the end of that, there's a paragraph that says, this catechism is not intended to replace the local catechisms duly approved by the ecclesiastical authorities, bishops, etc. And then it goes on and says that it is meant to encourage and, and assist in the writing of new local catechisms, which take into account various situations, cultures. Right. So, you know, in, in all the years that I've been listening to, you know, these shows, I've never heard anyone reference a local catechism. All right. So your question is about local catechisms. Is that it? Well, how, did, how does the local catechism and the catechism that I have, how do they work together? All right. Well, you got to remember that the universal catechism and the norms regarding it were written for a billion person church in all the cultures of the whole world. And not all cultures express certain things in the faith in exactly the same way. Now, the, the things are the same, but the local catechisms attempt to take the concepts we understand in general about our faith, and they would attempt to translate them a little bit for that particular culture. Now, in the United States, uh, we don't have much of a problem with that. Most of us were used to the Baltimore Catechism was a local catechism, actually, because it was initiated by the Council of Baltimore. And not every... Uh, Anybody in the whole world studied the Baltimore Catechism like we did as children. So that's one of the ways it would relate. You can't contradict the universal catechism, but what you are trying to do is put it in a palatable form so that people can remember it, number one, and number two, so they can relate it to their particular situation and their language. Some concepts are very hard to translate into other languages. I Recently, the last experience I had teaching full-time was at a seminary where most of the students were Vietnamese from Vietnam. Now, they've had several attempts to translate, for example, St. Thomas's Summa, but it's very difficult to change the language of the Summa into Vietnamese and have it make any sense because you're dealing with totally different world, you know, worldviews and experiences in a way. I guess it can be done, 
but so far the attempts haven't been too successful. And, and they'd like to do it, actually, many people. It's a worthwhile project, but it takes time to accomplish. So that's, that's what they're talking about there. The apostolic constitution is to try to implement the catechism in all the different cultures and contexts of this billion-person church all over the world. Does that help, Mike? A local catechism could never contradict doctrine or, or stuff exactly. in the universal. Okay. Yeah, right, but what you, what you're, yeah, but what you're trying to do in a local catechism is to uh, translate it, uh, what the ideas containing the universal catechism, in a way that those particular people can understand. Very good. Thanks, Mike. Very quickly, we'll head to Brett in Mansfield, Ohio, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Just about a minute and a half left with Father Brett. What's your question today? Well, my question is about uh, an almond and uh, confirmation. Um, I'm 55 years old. I found out that I was baptized Catholic uh, as an infant. I was looking into the process before that. Uh, to convert the Catholicism, but uh, in a whole process, myself and my current wife, we found out we had to get uh, an almond stuck. So right. uh, I, I was blessed finding out that since I was baptized Catholic, I did get to be proud and mine was taken care of in a matter of a week. Um, my wife is still going through hers. Not, well, what's your question? What's your question? Well, well my question would be um, as far as once hers is done, would she have to be baptized? And would that hold has me up ba- as far as confirmation? And- All right. Ha- has she ever been baptized? No. Okay. Well, she, if you want a Christian marriage, she has to be baptized. And if you want a Christian marriage, you both have to be confirmed, too. Very good. I wish we had a little more time for that question. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Person. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Back at it tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until then, God bless.